Uh, For many centuries, the book of Esther caused a great deal of heartburn in the church. I almost shy away from saying this, knowing that we just celebrated Reformation Day, October the 31st, and knowing that some of you dressed up like Martin Luther, and, and instead of handing out candy, you handed out little Luther bobbleheads. But Martin Luther had a lot of problems with the book of Esther. He said, and I quote, I am so great an enemy to Esther that I wish it had not come to us at all, for it has too many heathen unnaturalities. He wasn't the only one. John Calvin didn't include Esther in any of his commentaries. He only referenced it once in his institutes. He never even preached a single sermon from the book of Esther. And in one exchange with Erasmus, he said, Esther deserves to be regarded as non-canonical. In fact, for the first 700 years of human history, not one commentary was produced on the book of Esther. Everyone's looking at it saying, well, it's, um, it's awkward, it's a landmine, it's coarse, it's boorish. Let's just go to Romans. We'll live there for a while. And even more convincing than all of that, in the VeggieTale version of Esther, it's the only one where Bob the tomato doesn't appear. Why is it that so many theologians have rejected this book? Well, I have a couple of reasons. First, because this book does not mention God. And that might strike you as odd, considering the Bible is about God. You wouldn't think you'd find a godless book in the Bible. Secondly, because it doesn't seem to give us any divine perspective. God never speaks. A prophet never shows up. There are no miracles, no temple, no mention of covenants. There's not one prayer in the book. It's a dark book. Shadows everywhere. As history progressed, there there was a group who viewed it as belonging in the Bible, in the canon. But they wanted to remedy the two problems by adding several sections to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of Esther. So they added 107 verses in all. And it included prayers by two of the main characters. They tried to make it a little more acceptable. Tried to clean it up. The Catholic Church endorsed those late editions in the 16th century. Eventually, Protestant scholars chose to accept the book as it was first penned. And it's now universally recognized as being inspired. If you're interested in knowing how books were recognized as inspired or not inspired, we have a a helpful book on our recommended reading list on our website by Robert Plummer entitled 40 Questions About Interpreting the Bible. Uh, The best commentary on the book of Esther um, was written by Job's and um, in it, the, the author say, if you preach the book of Esther, it's not wise to preach through the whole book. So what are we going to do? We're going to walk through the entire book, verse by verse. And you say, why would we do this? Why would we do this when the leading commentary suggests that we shouldn't? When in their day, Martin Luther and John Calvin would not approve. Well, I'll answer that by addressing both objections. Although God's name is not mentioned, nor his stuff, his miracles, prayers, temple, God's absence in the book is a literary device the author uses to remind us how the Lord works through ordinary events. When God is apparently absent, when you don't see his name on any event, that doesn't mean that he's not working behind the scenes. In Esther, his face isn't present, but his fingerprints are. 
And whoever the human author is, the ultimate author is God. And he's showing you that when he is silent, he's not absent. Even in the shadows, you discover that God is a shadow sovereign. Esther shows the hand of God in the glove of normal events. By the way, Luther and Calvin are in the presence of God now, and their view of Esther has changed. And because of Hebrews 12:1, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that they are cheering us on as we walk verse by verse through this book. You're not going to want to miss a week of this study. It is so rich. Some of you here are not Christians. Non-Christians, you may be thinking, do I have a place in this study? I mean, you've already mentioned words like hermeneutics and canonicity. Well, you might be interested to know that there is not one Christian in chapter 1. My hope is that you'll see your sin clearly and you'll see your Savior clearly. And by the end of the chapter, you'll be one. You'll be a believer. Let's dig in. There are four movements in the text. Uh, a royal king, a royal feast, a royal mess, and a royal order. So let's just begin with a royal king. The author sets the scene by placing the king on center stage. Notice in verse 1, now in the days of Ahasuerus. The proper way to pronounce his name is Ahasuerus, but that's a bit of a, a tongue twister, so most speakers prefer to pronounce it Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is not the king's proper name, however. It's his kingly title, like Pharaoh to the Egyptians or Caesar to the Romans. The king's real name is Xerxes which I'll be using through the, rest of this, um, through the rest of our time. Xerxes means heroes of heroes. He was quite a warrior. If you need proof, at the beginning of his reign, he put down rebellions in Egypt and Babylon at the mere age of 32. The text says he reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. So you should think ruling over 127 states. If you're from Canada, the ESV aids you here, and instead of states, they, they go with provinces. India to Ethiopia. This, this is modern-day Libya and Africa, all the way to Pakistan and Asia. It's the largest empire in history. Xerxes' kingdom included Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, Jordan, Lebanon, Israel, Egypt, Sudan, and Arabia. The best we can tell, there were about 50 million people in the Persian Empire. And you may be thinking, Kyle, I mean, that's the world? 50 million people? We have over 300 million in the U.S. Yes, that's the known world. There, there's not a ton of people yet living in Alaska or Nebraska. Not a whole lot of people wearing kilts in Scotland or, or sombreros in Mexico. So this is the whole world. India and Ethiopia represent basically the ends of the known world. Uh, check out this picture. This is a world empire. Xerxes was no teacup tyrant. He ruled from sea to shining sea. He ruled over a vast geographical area. Many different peoples, many languages were spoken within his realm. Millions of people from diverse cultures, religions, and ethnicities gave their allegiance to him. And notice verse 2. In those days when King Xerxes sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, Susa is modern-day Iran. This is his winter capital because it's unbearable in the summer. Think South Florida in July. So his strong, fortified palace complex is rectangular, 72 feet above the general level of the city. 
Literally everyone lived in the shadow of his throne. He wanted to make sure people were below him and ascribed praise up to him. He was extremely conceited and honestly with with good reason. Uh, First, he had lots of power. One inscription was discovered where Xerxes wrote this of himself. I am Xerxes, the great king, the only king, the king of this entire earth, far and near. Not only did he have power, but he, but he had good looks. He was a Casanova. Uh, Herodotus, which is uh, a Greek historian, not inspired, but historical, a Greek historian who lived just after the Persian Empire, wrote that Xerxes was the tallest and most handsome of the Persian kings. And you did not want to cross this handsome king. He possessed an irrational rage. He's remembered by historians as a cruel and ruthless king. Xerxes the Great, more like Xerxes the Awful, but they called him Xerxes the Great. We read about his awfulness from, his, from some historical war stories. One story is of a man named Pythias who offered Xerxes an enormous amount of money in support of one of his military expeditions. Xerxes, moved by this man's loyalty, returned the gift and sent presents back to Pythias. However, when Pythias asked Xerxes to allow his oldest son to remain home from the war, the king, enraged by the request, ordered the son to be cut into two pieces and had the army march between them on their way to battle. On another occasion, Xerxes traveled back to Susa. He wintered there and he tried to seduce his sister-in-law. She refused his advances, and as a result, he later had her and her husband, who was his own brother, tortured to death. That's not it. Xerxes ordered that bridges be built across the narrow piece of water between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. They needed to get through there to conquer their next piece of land. However, the bridges were destroyed in a storm before the troops were able to cross. Xerxes was furious that the storm had destroyed the bridges, He thought they had been built inadequately by the engineers, so he gathered all the engineers together and beheaded them. And then he was furious with the water, so he sent the soldiers into the water with whips, demanding that they lash the ocean 300 times for its insubordination. Then he sent soldiers who threw shackles into the water to bind the water and to stab the waves with red-hot irons. This man was unstable. He was unhinged. He was a tyrant. One can only imagine what it was like to live under the shadow of his throne. We have a royal king, but we also have a royal feast. Notice in verse 3. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. They were before his throne. A governor for each province, so that's 127 governors. At least three nobles for each province, that's 381 people. Plus Xerxes' army. His personal bodyguard included 2,000 select horsemen, 2,000 lancers. They they would be on a horse, carried a long pole with a spear on the end. Plus 10,000 immortals. They were nicknamed the immortals because they were an elite, heavily armed infantry group. That's not the royal army. That's his personal security team. 14,000 deep. And he gives all of them a feast, and that's not even including the Persian army. Ancient sources number the Persian army at a million soldiers. 
Modern sources hedge on that a little bit and think it may have been 100,000. 100, Xerxes is surrounded by politicians and heroes, and they're all looking up to him. Verse 4, while Xerxes showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Why give a feast for soldiers, governors, heads of state that lasts for six months? Well, this meeting lines up perfectly with what we find in history. In history, we find that in the third year of the reign of Xerxes, he held a great war council. It's the war council of, 480, of 483 BC in the palace of Susa. It was at this council where the king met with the leaders of his nation to convince them that they could successfully invade and defeat the Grecian Empire. For 180 days, Xerxes makes war plans. He's confident in his ability to knock off Greece, confident that his military forces are going to be triumphant. Greece and Persia were the two superpowers of the world at this time. Herodotus records Xerxes saying in ancient literature, and I, and I believe it was at this particular mill because it was at the war council, he says, and I quote, I will punish the Athenians for what they have done to the Persians. To my father, you saw that Darius, my father, was minded to make an expedition against these men, but he is dead, and it was not granted him to punish them. And I, on his behalf, and on all the Persians' behalf, will never rest till I have taken and burnt Athens, end quote. This banquet, this feast, doubles as a war room, a situation room. They're partying, but they're also laying out the strategy. He's not merely unrolling scrolls across the table and, and marking the army's position with an X. He's also showing off his riches. And it took 180 days to do so. So he sits on his straight-backed throne, surrounded by his attendants, and the war camels and war horses are paraded through the banquet hall. The general livestock follow, his infantrymen, his 10,000 immortals walk through. His many chariots are pushed in front of his throne. 10,000 tons of rectangular gold bars are marched through. 270 tons of golden coins are swept through. Xerxes' riches were legendary. In fact, the tribute he received from his subjugated nations around him totaled more than 700 tons of gold and silver annually. On display is raw wealth, raw power, and you also see raw meat. What's the, what's the largest party you've ever attended? 100 people, maybe 200 people. This is likely hundreds of thousands of people. And Xerxes gave all of them a place to stay, like an all-inclusive resort. Imagine being the event planner for this party, scheduling houses for 100,000 people, or a couple hundred thousand people, transportation, all-you-can-eat buffet, meat cooked rare. It's like a, 180 days of a Brazilian steakhouse. They just keep the meat coming, cutting it off on your plate. Filet mignon, wrapped in bacon. Braised beef tips, lamb chops, six months of a Brazilian steakhouse. I mean, that sounds like heaven to me. Sarah and I took a, a Canadian pastor to a Brazilian steakhouse one time. And um, he told us the next day, he said, I ate so much red meat, I had, I had weird dreams. Red meat gives me weird dreams. 
And I said, look, Pastor, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I slept like a baby when I ate all that red meat. And by the way, they're called states, not provinces. All right, anyway, at the conclusion of the exhibit, at the end of the six-month military summit, Xerxes had another banquet. He's like, don't stop the music. Let's keep this party coming. Notice verse 5. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast, lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So you've got a 180-day banquet for the high-class military governors that was located in and around the palace. Then following that, you have a seven-day banquet added Add, add to that group the common folk around the citadel. And, and this seven-day banquet is outside in a massive garden. It was a huge festival. This festival would put Brazil's carnival to shame. The people's tax dollars are hard at work for this even larger festival. While the average laborer received barely enough to live on, life in the court was extravagant beyond imagination. And strangely to our ears, there's... No protest from the common people even hinted. The banquet is designed to prove to Xerxes' subjects that he was everything he boasted he was. I am indeed the king of the whole earth. In fact, in verse 4, he showed off his glory. Glory. That's a worship word. He wants his praise to be sung. He's a guy who lives for his own glory. He wants his people before his throne to sing up to him. Martin Luther said rightly, and, and since I was hard on him earlier, let me praise something he said here. Martin Luther said rightly, sin is self bending in on self. We are made to glorify. We are made to praise. We are made to worship. But because of sin, we seek to glorify ourselves. It's all about my fame, my money, my pleasure, my reputation, my wants, my hurts, my longings, my needs. And the world should acknowledge my glory and serve my glory. And we end up in misery because the glory is not fitting for us. The glory belongs to another. Back at the party, the, the king's courtyard is elaborately decorated. Notice verse 6. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings. Let's, let's stop there. The word curtains and hangings are nouns. Um, in Hebrew, they simply mean stuff. That, that's how you would translate it. Stuff. That's the, the stuff is presumed to be curtain material. We know, that, we know that the purple was the most expensive. Only the rich dealt in purple. Lydia and Philippi was a dealer of purple. So just imagine the common folk walking through saying, I've never seen anything purple. And there's a purple curtain, and a purple rug, and a purple tablecloth. And he's wearing purple clothes. And look over there in the corner. Somebody's wearing a costume, and it's a purple costume. Purple dinosaur costume. <laughs> Reading the verses, it's almost like Joanna Gaines is describing for us the decor. Uh, whoever it is, they have an eye of an interior decorator. White and blue cotton curtains, marble pillars, couches of gold. I've seen a leather couch, never a couch of gold. Doesn't seem very comfortable. Driveways made of precious stone. We just finished our east parking lot here. We didn't, you know, we thought for a second, let's just fill that up with precious stones. And then we thought concrete's just slightly cheaper. So we'll go concrete. 
And what, what a just a fabulous oriental world, a time when the Persian Empire was still young and, and beautiful. Verse 7, drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. A Persian goblets of gold and silver like the one you see on the screen behind me. Royal wine flowed freely. This is a generous king. The people in the palace, they were working. The people around the citadel, they were gardening. But now they have a seven-day staycation. What would, it be if, what would it be like if your job said, you know, you don't have to work for the next seven days. But just come on in. We, we're going to hold an open bar every day be pretty crazy. This was crazy. Xerxes' wine cellar had to be larger than this entire building. Notice verse 8. And drinking was according to his edict. There was no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. According to historians, there was a law that whenever the king drank, everyone else drank. The toastmaster signaled when it was time to take a swig. But this edict says you could drink as much as you like or as little as you like. If you want more, there's going to be waiters at your elbow to refill your drink. See, unlike in our culture, Persians deliberated matters of state under the influence of alcohol because they believed that intoxication put them in closer touch with the gods whose support they needed to win the war. Notice verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Xerxes. I don't want to confuse you here and think that there was just one palace for the men, one uh, festival for the men and one festival for the women. In, in this big, huge festival, there were both men and women. But while that one was going on, there was a special banquet for the king's concubines, his other wives, side wives. He had 360 of them. We see a royal king, a royal feast. And finally, we see a royal mess. Before the throne, there is a mess. Verse 10. On the seventh day, the entire, the entire book really hinges on the seventh day. It's the axis. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. Let me translate that. He's three sheets to the wind. He's stone cold plastered, falling off his throne, blitzed. And the king is going to do something stupid like most people do when they're intoxicated. But the point of this passage is not the evils of drunkenness, but how dangerous it was to have Xerxes holding great power and wielding it unpredictably. After a week of intoxication and indulgence, Xerxes decides he will put his wife on display. So he commands his seven eunuchs, his seven dwarfs, verse 11, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Now we know from history that Persian women did not cover their faces with veils. As the queen of the kingdom, she had already appeared in public, more than likely during the six-month reception as well as other state functions. Everybody already knew and recognized the beautiful face of Vashti. So this must be talking about more. And I'm embarrassed to have to tell you what's going on here. But there's no way to sanitize it. The text alludes, her, alludes to her coming wearing her crown and only her crown. In other words, walk the catwalk, 
a little show and tell for his friends. The Jewish Midrash, a commentary that goes all the way back to the second century, again, not inspired, but historical, explained that the queen was being commanded to actually arrive unclothed, decorated only by her crown jewels. The Persian culture was so promiscuous that it was common for powerful and influential men to parade their wives and concubines unclothed in order to show them off to one another. It's a bit of a competition. Xerxes is still parading his riches through the banquet hall, but now it's just his wife. And you say, Kyle, how wicked is that culture? Friends, we're not that far away now. This is Daytona Beach during spring break. This is swimsuit competitions. This is Miss America pageants. This is, this is the Mardi Gras festival. This is tied to the promise that what you do in Vegas stays in Vegas. This is the local gentleman's club where anyone but a gentleman actually goes. This is the billion dollar pornography enterprise. This is the bachelor party you should have walked away from. This is the all too common story where women are paraded about and then tossed aside. The spirit of, Xer of Xerxes is alive and well. Verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come. Good for her, at the king's command. She refuses to step on stage. The seven men scurry to the king, frantically whisper, she's not coming. This is extremely embarrassing when Xerxes is trying to solidify his support for a campaign to go to war. This all unfolds before the throne in front of all the dignitaries. He can dominate a lot of things, but not dominate his wife. He could control armies, but could not control one woman. There's subtle irony and humor here. Verse 12 continues, at this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. He's seething with anger, drunk anger. His face is turning red, then going beyond red to purple. He has been denied. You do not deny this king. Now, why didn't, why didn't Queen Vashti appear? Why did she say no? Well, there are a few options. Um, first, maybe she had some dignity. Her beauty was her own and her husband's. It was not for open show among thousands of half-drunk men. She's risking everything. She's willing to sacrifice all the pomp and glamour and wealth. She's willing to walk away from paradise rather than become a sexual pawn to be shown off like a piece of property. So maybe she had some dignity or maybe some scholars believe she was expecting a child. Ancient writings revealed the name of Xerxes' wife as Amitri. It's got an S on the end, but it's silent. Amitri. And, and they, some of them say it's another name for Vashti. If this was the case, she's in late stage pregnancy with their son, a man named Artaxerxes, who you've probably read about in history. Third option, maybe she knew it was sin. Maybe she had a tender conscience to sin. Some men like to dress up their wives and parade them around so that other men would be impressed by their trophy. And that's a godless thing. That's a horrible thing. That's, that's denigrating. That's disrespectful. That's damaging. Well, we're, we're going to a ball tonight. We want to get a lot of my boys there. Why don't you show a little more skin? When a husband asks his wife to disobey the Lord, he is not the highest authority. You say, Kyle, which one do you think it was? I think it was option one, that she had some dignity. I don't think it was option two because... The king had many wives, so um, you know, this could be queen for this year and then another queen the next year and another queen the next year. I don't think it was number three because 
She wasn't a believer. Vashti had a shred of moral dignity that was built into her, but she wasn't a follower of Christ. So after the hard no, the king turned to his seven closest advisors. These were men who were permitted to enter the king's presence uninvited and unannounced. They were like the inner cabinet of the king. And notice verse 15. Xerxes says, According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command. Then uh, Mimikin, which is one of the seven, he's going to manipulate the king. And notice how he manipulates him by the end of verse 16. Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. By universalizing the event, he can present his fears in terms of the good of the kingdom. King, Twitter is blowing up. Vashti is, is trending on Instagram. The women of the empire are going to be picketing with signs that say, support the king, support the queen's. Just say no policy. The queen's action will start a, a women's liberation movement. It might trigger a sexual strike from the women in Persia. Before you know it, skillets are going to be flying through the air. Laundry is going to pile up. Meals are going to disappear. It's going to be total anarchy. I mean, we don't even want to go home now, king. What's it going to be like then? We've got to stop this national disaster before it happens. We have a royal king, a royal feast a royal mess, and then we have a royal order. Notice verse 19. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti, notice this is the first time she's not referred to as Queen Vashti, that Vashti is never again to come before King Xerxes. Xerxes agrees. He strips the queen of her crown, if she will not come when summoned, she will never come again. The king has an overreaction for the ages. He implements a new law, a law that will affect 127 states. The king lost his head, and the queen lost her crown. He will not lose the support of his governors for this war. He'll show Vashti, and he'll show these governors who's boss by implementing this law. That states at the end of verse 20, all women will give honor to their husbands. The Persian Empire was glued together by edicts and, and laws. But this law merely serves as a fig leaf to cover the whim of the king. Vashti has now courageously entered and exited. We will continue through the book of Esther for weeks, but we will never see her again. Though scripture does not say that she was murdered we can predict what was in store for her. Culturally, there's little chance she would have survived this fate. I imagine he cut her in half and made the people walk through her split body on their way back home from the festival. Verse 22, Xerxes sent letters to all the royal provinces. Picture that map in your head. To every province in, its own, in his own script and to every people in its own language. Now given the great international gathering, there would have been no shortage of, of translators. So they're translating this message in, in different languages. And then they're sending it out. Their postal service was, was legit to death. It was like UPS on steroids. They, they actually had a motto. 
It went like this. Neither snow nor rain nor gloom of night stays these courageous couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. Does that sound familiar? Sound like the U.S. Postal Service? Stole it from Xerxes. They sent messengers on horseback to the farthest points of the empire. And can't you just see some guys getting this in the mail? New edict from the, from the king that every man, verse 22, be master in his own household. He reads it. Man, this is what I've been needing. I mean, can't you just see them taping it to the window next to the kitchen sink? Then putting one in the living room, taping it right over the TV so it hangs, maybe even putting it on the remote, putting it on the minivan because they all drove them back then. The moment the little wife starts to talk back or disagree, he points to the edict, every man be master in his own household. Well, Xerxes will go to war with Greece. His army will march through Pythia's son on the way. So after this chapter, they're... He's splitting the sun and they're walking through. What happens in that war? What happens after the war? All of that and more awaits us when we open Esther chapter 2 next week. But until then, let's apply this chapter. I've got three applications. Application number one. Esther 1 creates in us a conviction about earthly thrones. If you think the future of your country rests in a president, you are mistaken. And I don't care if it's George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, or Donald J. Trump. Now, well, what if one of these presidential candidates gets elected and we lose our tax exemption? <gasps> well, that would surely destroy all that Jesus died to save. The tax exemption. The stewardship of power is a major theme running throughout the Bible. We've seen unchecked, what unchecked power produces. Stalin, Mussolini. Mass graves through Siberia filled with skulls riddled with bullet holes attest to Stalin's great purge in the 1930s. A quick scan of newspaper headlines in the recent years and decades will show political leaders around the globe who get drunk on power. Marcos in the Philippines. Uh, Noriega in um, Panama. Hussein in Iraq. Don Xiaoping in China, Adi Amendada in Uganda. But we are a people who know how to live under political corruption. God's people then and God's people now often find themselves in a world in which the reins of power are in the hands of the incompetent or immoral. So name whichever empire, nation, or government you wish as the mightiest, the greatest, and the most powerful. But Psalm 2 tells us that the king of the universe sits high above on his throne laughing at the importance of the greatest nations. Application number one creates in us a real theology of how to view governments. Application number two. Esther 1 creates in us a longing for a new king. This king Xerxes had... Uh, he had seven eunuchs, seven advisors, and his second feast lasted seven days. Seven represents perfection. This text screams for a perfect king. However, Xerxes disappoints, and we are left longing for another king. 
you are meant to contrast the two kings. King Xerxes and King Jesus. Xerxes was the son of Darius. Jesus was the son of God. Xerxes never tasted poverty or humility. Jesus tasted both poverty and humility to identify with us. Xerxes used his power to abuse women. Jesus used his power to honor women. Xerxes spent his entire life being served. Jesus spent his entire life serving others. Xerxes killed his enemies with an army of millions. Jesus died for his enemy, saving billions. Xerxes sat on a throne in Susa. Jesus sits on a throne in heaven. Xerxes was the most powerful man on earth. Jesus created the earth and he sustains it. Xerxes thought he was a man who became a god. Jesus is God who became a man. Xerxes' kingdom had subjects from many nations, but Jesus' kingdom has joyful worshipers from every nation. Xerxes threw a banquet that lasted a long time, 180 days. Jesus will throw a banquet, banquet that will last for eternity. Revelation 19. Xerxes' kingdom was built off of forced, heavy taxation. Jesus' kingdom is built off of the generosity of his people. Xerxes thinks he's a big deal, but he will bow before the one who is the big deal. He wanted to be a worldwide king. Jesus is the worldwide king. Xerxes paraded his wife degradingly, but King Jesus at the end of time parades his wife spotless, pure, and glorious. We have a better king, and we're part of a better kingdom. Application number three. Esther 1 creates in us a longing for a sovereign God. Xerxes seemed to be the preeminent mover and shaker in the kingdom of Persia. But as we'll find out throughout the rest of the book, behind the scenes, he is just a pawn in the hands of the real mover and shaker. If you get nothing else from this study, get this. Even when God is invisible, he is still invincible. Even when God is silent, he is still sovereign. And you may not understand the choreography, but you can trust the creator. Don't miss this truth parading across the Persian stage. God is backstage, directing it all. I mean, just look at your program. Who's sponsoring this drama? God. There's no Christian in chapter 1. That's okay. God will fill this book and his kingdom with Christians by the end. Chuck Swindoll, a faithful expositor of um, years by, said, and I quote, Don't fall into the trap of thinking that God is asleep when it comes to nations. Or that he is out of touch when it comes to carnal banquets. Or that he sits in heaven wringing his hands when it comes to godless rulers who make unfair, rash, or even foolish decisions. This is the wonder of God's providence. Working behind the scenes, bringing out in even the most carnal and secular of settings a decision that will set his perfect plan in place. End quote. You need this. God's hand is in the glove of your history. Not just Persian history, but your history too. Things aren't falling randomly in your life. They haven't fallen randomly this week. It's God's hand in the glove of your history. And no matter how helpless you might feel as your drama unfolds, God is managing every scene to fulfill his purposes in your life. And no matter what earthly throne you are before, you are living in the shadow of God's throne. And there's no chaos there. 
There's no mess there. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.